Give Jesus a praise offering before we're seated. Wow. You may be seated. What sweet moments of worship we were able to just partake in to sing about the blood of Jesus applied for us. Thank you for joining us, all of you here in this room at Carrollton and all of you online, wherever you are. And whenever you're partaking in this service, we are so thankful that you are here. We know that a lot of us are sick and need to be home, but we're praying for you and we're thinking about you. And in fact, we had a beautiful prayer service both here in person and virtually Wednesday night where we got to go to the Lord together and holding up our brothers and our sisters. So we're thinking and praying for our church body during this time. Last week, I shared with you our clarion call, our rallying cry for this year that God has laid on our heart. And this is our rallying cry right here, that because we have been pursued by a loving God, we lovingly pursue those within our reach. Because God has pursued you and I, he has saved us, he has transformed us, he has changed us from the inside out because we have been pursued by a loving God. We join him and we lovingly pursue those within our reach. Now, I also said to you last week that just knowing that we are to pursue our community doesn't mean that we'll actually pursue our community. Because what it takes to pursue others is a growing wonder and awe of how God has pursued us. And the deeper we get in the awe and wonder of how Christ has pursued us, the more compelled that we will be to pursue those within our reach. So beginning today and over the next five weeks, we're going to jump into the stories of five individuals in the scripture who were uniquely pursued by God, that they lived lives of notable faith and incredible faith because they yielded their life to the pursuit and power of God. And wherever you are on your faith journey, I believe that in these stories that we're unpacking over the next few weeks, you will see a part of your story. And you will see the incredible, amazing ways in which Jesus lovingly has, is, always will be pursuing you. Today, we're going to be in the story of Elijah. The story of Elijah. Elijah was a prominent prophet, both in the Old Testament, and he is the prophet most talked about in the New Testament. Elijah was born and lived in the first half of the 9th century B.C., he appears on the pages of biblical text during the reign of King Ahab. We know that through Elijah, God did at least eight major miracles and multiple more supernatural moments that Elijah got to be a part of. Through Elijah, God would raise a son of a widow. Elijah would pray that it would not rain and the heavens would close and it didn't rain for three and a half years. Then he would pray again and then rain would come down. God fed Elijah through the ravens. Elijah split the Jordan River and even made flour and oil multiply to keep a family fed in the days of famine. Wow, what a remarkable prophet of God. In fact, in the way that Elijah left this world, it was nothing short of remarkable. He didn't die. He was caught up in a whirlwind, accompanied by chariots of fire and taken directly to God, don't you want to go like that? That's a mic drop moment or better than that. To just be taken and caught up, taken directly to God. Today, we're going to be in the story of Elijah in 1 Kings 19. And we're going to be camped out there. But before we get to 1 Kings 19, I want to make a pit stop in James chapter 5. In James chapter 5. Because by now, you're thinking, based on what I've told you about Elijah, this is a superhuman. 
Like we can't be anything like Elijah. He is some extraordinary person who we could never relate with. Of course God would use him. Of course God would pursue him because there's something special about him that we don't have. Well, notice what James, the half-brother of Jesus, says about Elijah. In talking about prayer, here's what James says. Elijah was a human being even as we are. He was a human being like you and like me. He was an ordinary person, a human being like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and, produce, and the earth produced its crops. James, when talking about the power of prayer, says what made Elijah's prayer so powerful was not Elijah. It was the God he prayed to. It was God Almighty that he was surrendered and yielded to. Elijah was an ordinary man who did extraordinary things because his life was yielded to the pursuit and power of God. And because God pursued him, he sent him to pursue those that God had called him to reach. Elijah was a human being just like us. Right before the story in 1 Kings 19, which, by the way, invites us into the humanity of Elijah in ways we understand. Because we realize in 1 Kings 19 that Elijah shares in our commonness, our ordinariness, if that's a word. He shares with our struggle, our fears, and even our darkest thoughts we would be ashamed to tell others about. Elijah, the great prophet of God. Yes, that same Elijah shares in the brokenness we feel deep inside. 1 Kings 19, and the narrative takes place after the miracle of what we call Mount Carmel. In 1 Kings 18, it describes this incredible, remarkable day where the dispute was settled regarding who the true God of the universe was. There was a growing population in Israel who thought it was Baal, a pagan god. And then just a minority group by now in Israel who was holding on to the truth that it was Jehovah God, the God of the Bible. So on Mount Carmel then, King Ahab, who was king at the time, he gathered together about 450 prophets of Baal. And then there is Elijah standing all by himself. The prophets of Baal representing Team Baal and Elijah holding true, standing strong for Jehovah God. And all of Israel is there to witness this moment that will verify for them who really is God. So the deal is that each party is given one bull, one animal to offer as a sacrifice. And they do. The prophets of Baal go first and they divide up the animal and they could put it on the altar but not set fire to it. The condition is that you put your animal on the offer and pray to your God. And whichever God opens up the heavens and consumes the altar, the sacrifice with fire, that God really is God. So don't put fire to it. Let God send fire. Prophets of Baal get to their turn and they begin to pray. The Bible says that they prayed all day, all the way till the evening. They danced around the altar, trying to entice their God to respond. They prayed louder and even showed their desperation by harming themselves, hoping that their God would respond. But no answer was given. And then, now it's Elijah's turn. He steps up to the plate. He, in order to add some extra flair, to the miracle, pours 12 jars of water 
on the animal, the wood, and the altar, just to make it so clear that this is something supernatural. And Elijah prays this simple prayer. And immediately God opens up the heaven. Fire comes down and consumes Elijah's sacrifice. In that moment, it was verified once and for all. The God of the Bible, Jehovah God, is God. In fact, the prophets of Baal see this visible power of God and they fall to their knees, they fall on their faces, and they say, Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God. What a remarkable moment where God, yet again, once again, proved to the world that he is unmatched. There is no rival. There is no equal to our great God. Elijah, imagine what he felt. He must have felt so backed up by God as heaven came and verified who God was. He should be feeling so resolute, so bold. I mean, this is a moment you go on a national book tour and write about what happened. It's a moment to write your novel and and, and just tell everybody what's happened. He has just seen the visible manifestation of God's power in a way that he should never doubt God or fear anybody ever Again, now we pick up in 1 Kings 19. And notice what happens after the miracle of Mount Carmel. 1 Kings 19 verse 1 begins and says, Ahab told Jezebel. Jezebel is Ahab's wife. And she had this national idea, this goal to make the worship of Baal all around Israel. That he would be the prominent God. So Ahab told Jezebel what happened. Everything that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, May the gods punish me and do so severely if I don't make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Verse 3 reads like this. Then Elijah became afraid. And immediately ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba that belonged to Judah, he left his servant there. But he went on a day's journey into the wilderness. He sat down under a broom tree and prayed that he might die. He said, I have had enough, Lord. Take my life, for I'm no better than my father's. Wow, what a drastic change in the scenery. What a drastic change in how Elijah, this mighty man of faith, a prominent prophet of God, is feeling. He has just gone from revival to resentment, from his best day to his worst day. Literally, his mountaintop experience with God to a low valley moment, a valley moment of suicidal thoughts, depression, anxiety, where he's wanting God to take his life. And rapidly he's gone there. Quickly he's gone from Mount Carmel to now just asking God to take his life. And that's the condition we find him in 1 Kings 19. Now before we jump into how God pursues this runaway prophet, this distressed, disappointed, discouraged prophet, I want to mention a few things here in the text that I think led Elijah to this rapidly downward spiral, this rapid downward spiral that he goes on. First of all, I think you'll notice the power of negative words here. The power of negative words. Jezebel, verse 3, sent a messenger to Elijah saying, speaking. Jezebel sent a messenger. Like she didn't even show up in person. She sent a messenger. It's like getting a text 
about a threat or some negative words. Elijah, time and time again, has encountered the provision of God, the power of God, the protection of God. But all it took was one messenger sent by Jezebel for him to go down into this downward spiral. And the Bible says that he actually saw the writing of the wall. He became afraid because he saw the writing of the wall for his life and became afraid of Jezebel. All it took was one voice. You would imagine that there's many ways in this text that Elijah could have called the bluff of Jezebel. I mean, for one instance, she is swearing by the very gods that Elijah has just proven that they don't even exist. But this man of faith, by the power of one person, one voice, runs for his life. I wonder what the sound, the voice of Jezebel may look like in your life. Maybe it's one voice that has drowned out the love of God, the power of God, the purpose of God in your life. Maybe it's from the past, a voice from the past that plagues you in the present. Maybe it is the fear of the future that makes you afraid and makes you run. Is there a voice in your life that quickly drowns out the faithfulness of God, the answered prayers of God, the goodness of God? One voice that says you're not enough. You can't do this. You can't be who God's called you to be. If you do have a voice, you are right here in the story with Elijah. The second thing in the text that you realize is the danger of disengaging from community. The danger of disengaging, disconnecting from community. Verse 3 goes on to say, when he came to Beersheba that belonged to Judah. By the way, a fun fact here, Judah was the end of the jurisdiction of Jezebel. Like this was the, the limit to where she could even pursue him. So he could have stopped running right here in the story. In fact, the 24-hour time frame Jezebel gave him had already expired. He could have stopped running and went home. But what did he do when he got to Judah? He left his servant there, but he went on a day's journey into the wilderness. Servants in ancient times were the people closest to you, your companions. They supported you. They provided for you. They were with you nonstop. And here, when Elijah needed his servant, perhaps the most he ever needed him, he left his servant there and went alone into the wilderness. He went alone into the wilderness. Maybe Elijah really believed that he was going to die, and he wanted to die alone. Maybe he didn't want the memory of his servant to be of him so vulnerable, so exposed, so discouraged. So when he needed his servant the most, he cut ties with him. Unfortunately, I see this happening with Christians often. That when we need community the most is when we run from community. When we need people to speak life and to speak hope is actually when we tend to cut ties. Maybe we think people won't understand that they're not going to be supportive, that they're going to fight us back or push us back. But actually, it's when you need the community of God, the family of God, that you draw close to the community, not disengage, not disconnect, to jump into a group, to draw closer to your group, to meet with a pastor, to be in the prayer room saying, I've got something I'm going through. I need prayer. I need support. And if you're here at Bentry and you're going through something, whether small or big, I want to invite you to, to allow us into your story and let us walk with you. Don't be Elijah here in the story and travel alone into the wilderness to where no one can find you. We don't promise to have all the answers, but we do promise to walk with you 
Allow people to journey with you through what you're going through. Elijah gave in to the negative voice of one person. He disengaged from community. And what happened then is that he experienced a downward spiral of self-pity. Third of all, he experienced a downward spiral of self-pity. Look at verse 4 and then verse 10. He sat down under a broom tree and prayed that he might die. He said, I have had enough, Lord. Take my life, for I'm no better than my father's. Later on in verse 10, as he's in a conversation with God, Elijah replied to God and said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of armies, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, tore down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are looking for me to take my life. Some of the stuff that Elijah says isn't even accurate, but he has convinced himself of this narrative. You know, oftentimes when we're dealing with anxiety, depression, discouragement, what we need to do is not listen to ourselves, but speak to ourselves. What we need to do is not listen to our inner voice, but speak to our soul. As David would speak to his soul, here Elijah opted to listen to his soul, to listen to the words of discouragement rather than speaking words of hope and words of faith. And it took him down into this downward spiral of blame, resentment, and isolation, thinking that everybody is against him, and even believing that perhaps God isn't for him. And this is where Elijah is. Now, we're going to jump into how it is that God pursues this runaway prophet who wants to end it all, who finds himself utterly hopeless. What is it that God does to pursue him? In fact, I want to invite you to journey in this text with me and track the various ways in God pursuing Elijah. Look for the various beautiful, unique ways in which God pursues Elijah. Verse 5 reads like this. Then he lay down and slept under the broom tree. Suddenly an angel touched him. The angel told him, get up and eat. Then he looked and there at his head was a loaf of bread baked over hot stones and a jug of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. As Elijah is complaining, as he's telling his story to God, he falls asleep. I think God kind of put him to sleep. God kind of sent a holy slumber over him and he falls asleep. And when he wakes up from his sleep, he sees an angel with hot bread cooked over coals ready for him to eat and a jug of water. I mean, Joanne and I were talking this week and we we're thinking, I don't know if there's an angel division in heaven that's over baking bread or baking division, but Elijah slept and woke up and God sent him a personal butler, an angel who would make fresh bread for him and give him a jug of water. In fact, in the storyline, he falls asleep again. And when he wakes up, what does he find? Another angel who cooked him yet another meal. He ate and he drank and he slept. And he ate and he drank. And the text says that Elijah was strengthened by the food that he ate. He was strengthened by the food that he ate. I think it's so fascinating that at Mount Carmel, Elijah experiences the incredible power of God. God opens up the heavens and sends fire down to consume the sacrifice. He experiences the power of God. But here in Beersheba, as he's so disappointed, Elijah doesn't merely experience the power of God. He experiences the tender care of God. He experiences the kindness of God, the tender 
care of God that comes to him not from fire from heaven, but bread from heaven. Bread to sustain his physical body to care for him. Reminded of how Jesus showed up on the shore after the resurrection. The disciples had been out fishing all night. Many of them denied him or left him. Peter had denied him. And what is it that Jesus says to them as soon as he sees them? Come have breakfast with me. He had cooked fish and bread and baked and grilled all of that and said, Come eat with me. He wasn't mad at them that they had left. No, he wanted to care for them. And here in the story, God's not mad at Elijah that he's complaining. God's not saying, I expected more out of you. He sends an angel to strengthen his body. I think it's fascinating that God doesn't give Elijah here in this moment a new spiritual revelation or insight or a spiritual challenge. He just gives him rest and gives him food. He gives him rest and gives him food. So here's what I'm saying. Here's my application to you. The most spiritual thing you could do is perhaps to take a nap. It is to rest. In fact, after you go home today, have a good lunch and then take a long nap. But make sure you set your clock, your alarm to 325 before the Cowboys beat the 49ers. You want to be up for that. But take a nap once in a while. It's okay to rest. Sometimes healing begins when we trust God enough to rest in him. Healing begins when we trust God enough to rest. Some of you have been striving. You've been going hard. And it's been years since you've taken a day off. It's been a long time since you could remember an actual day of Sabbath. But you rested in the promises of God, in the finished work of Jesus. Not just resting in him as a lifestyle, but actually taking pockets of weeks and months to say, God, I'm resting in you. Healing begins when we trust God enough to rest in him. The one story of Jesus taking a nap is in the middle of a storm on a boat. The disciples are panicking. They think their life is about to end. But Jesus is napping. What a good life. In the middle of a storm. Why? Not because he was irresponsible or uncaring. But because he knew that his life was fully in the Father's hand. A deep sense of trust. Sometimes God strengthens our body to heal our mind. Healing begins when we trust enough to rest. The story continues. Elijah gets up after the second time. And verse 8 reads like this. So he got up, ate, and drank. Then on the strength from that food, he walked 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Horeb is the same as Mount Sinai, by the way. He entered a cave there and spent the night. I want to show you a map of Elijah's travels so far. He has begun towards the northern side of Israel in Jezreel. That's where Mount Carmel is. He goes to Beersheba. That's where he falls asleep and the angel feeds him. That's a distance of about 100 miles. Then after the angel fed him, he makes his way all the way down to Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. It's almost as if he's running as far as he could to get out of Dodge, even to get out of the country. He runs all the way to Mount Sinai, which is the distance from Beersheba to Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, of 224 miles. So the total distance of his run out of fear, of his run to dodge Jezebel, to leave everything behind is a distance of 324 miles on foot. For all of you marathon runners, that's 12 marathons put together. And this is what fear does to, to Elijah. 
This is what discouragement, depression does to us. It makes us run as far as we can. So here Elijah gets to Mount Horeb and he hides in a cave. Mount Horeb is Mount Sinai. God had this all planned out, didn't he? Elijah thought he was just running from Jezebel, running from his servant, running from all that he knew. But what we realize is that in all of his running from God, he was actually running to God. At every turn he was running, he wasn't actually running from God, he was running to God. Why? Because God pursued him. God met him. In every single turn, God met him. This is the very mountain that Moses received the Ten Commandments on. An incredible moment. I don't know if Elijah planned it that way, but God sure planned it that way. In fact, the language in the Hebrew says that as he went into the cave, the cave, it's language that it says he went into the same cave that Moses found shelter in as God passed by. So now he is hiding in a cave Thinking he has shut out the world. No one can get to him. Not Jezebel, not his servant. No one. He is finally in the silence of a cave. But lo and behold, there is a pursuing God. Lo and behold, there is a pursuing God. He could shut out the world, but he could not shut out God. He entered a cave there and spent the night. And suddenly... I love that word, suddenly. The word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah, what are you doing here? He is in a cave thinking no one can get to him, but there is one who can get to you in a cave. You might have shut out the wall, but here the word of the Lord came to Elijah. The word of the Lord showed up into a cave. And I love the scene because God's word did not wait for Elijah to get out of the cave before he met him. It didn't wait for Elijah to get his act together and get his mood swing up and get his soul all fixed up. See, religion says you got to fix yourself up before you can meet God. You got to do this and that and say these things and follow these rituals and traditions. But the gospel says, no, 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 no. God meets you in the cave. You can't get out of the cave on your own. He comes there and picks you up. God didn't wait for Elijah to get out of the dark, to get out of the cave. No, his word came to him in the cave. He met him right there. God says, Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah begins to recount the whole story. I'm running for my life. This is what Jezebel's done. This is what your people have done. They've torn down your covenant and just regurgitates the story, makes him the victim. Scott, I'm alone. I have no one to support me. God replies in the cave and verse 11 reads, then he said, this is God speaking, Elijah, go out and stand on the mountain in the Lord's presence. At that moment, the Lord passed by a great mighty wind was tearing at the mountains and was shattering cliffs before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire. The Lord was not in the fire either. And after the fire, there was a voice, a soft whisper, a soft, gentle whisper. So much of this scene resembles 
Exodus 19, where God met with Moses and you see the earthquake, you see the smoke of fire, you see the mountains shattering and trembling at the very presence of God because God showed up in such a powerful way. But the uniqueness of this moment, this scene, is that Elijah doesn't find God where he expected to find God. He expected to find God on the earthquake and the wind, even the fire, because that's what happened in the last chapter. But God was not in any of those moments that could have been, but he wasn't. God could have so easily overwhelmed this discouraged, weak, runaway prophet by the majesty of his power. But God wasn't found in the grandiose, majestic display of his power. Where was he found? In a soft, gentle whisper. The Hebrew literally translates that as the sound of sheer silence. Not in the wind, not in the earthquake, not in something so big and impressive, but in the sound of sheer whisper. That's where he was found. The gentle blowing of the wind. The sound of silence. I think it's just amazing that Elijah would even recognize God there. I don't know if I would have. Because oftentimes I'm not quiet enough to hear the whisper. I'm looking for something more impressive, something more big, something more grandiose, thinking that's where God is, that's how he always acts. But Elijah was at least sensitive enough to find God in the whisper. Jesus said, my sheep know my voice, they hear me even in the whisper. Oh, may we be a people that it doesn't take an earthquake or a wind to hear God, that all it would take is a gentle whisper. All it would take is a nudge, a quickening, a prompting in your heart, and you sense his presence, you feel him, you hear him, even in the whisper. Elijah found God in the sheer silence, in the gentle whisper. So I was thinking about this narrative this week, and all these moments of God's pursuit. God first sent an angel in Beersheba where Elijah wants to die, made him bread. Then in the cave, his voice, his word came to him. And then God met him in this gentle whisper, this sound of sheer silence. And what I recognize this week, and I hope you'll recognize this today, this truth, is that God in his loving pursuit meets us where we are, not where we should be. He meets us where we are, not where we should be. If you follow the story of Elijah, these are all places, quote-unquote, unfit for a prophet, unfit for a man of faith. These aren't the kind of things you would normally expect in the Holy Scriptures. These should be men of faith who overcome every doubt and every fear. And they're never running away. No, no, no. Elijah is running. His soul is in a condition that you probably don't expect him to be. But still, God's loving pursuit meets us, met him. Not where he should have been, but where he was. He meets us. Sometimes we think our faith is so low, it is so weak, that we are plagued by whatever has gone on, and we think, surely God won't meet me here. I should be further along. I should be deeper in the word. I should be praying more, whatever it might be. But the good news of the gospel, that so he meets us right where we are, not where we should be. So God meets Elijah. He restores his soul, his body. He speaks life even in the gentleness of his whisper. But not only that, God sends him on a pursuit of others. 
He has been pursued by God, and now God recommissions Elijah. And notice this, then the Lord said to him, go and return by the way you came to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you are to anoint Haziel as king over Aram. You are to anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Maholah, as prophet in your place. Elijah thinks his ministry is over. He thinks perhaps he's been disqualified from God's purposes in his life. But God pursues him and sends him right back the way he came. God is saying to Elijah, I am not done with you. I'm not through with your story. I still have a plan for you. I have a purpose for you. God didn't make Elijah prove himself again. No, no, no. God recommissioned him and sent him back with a great purpose. God sent Elijah to go and pursue Elisha, who would now carry a double portion of his anointing and repopulate Israel with a whole new school of prophets. He sent him with a mission. God sent Elijah to anoint the next king of Israel and the next king of Aram. These two kings who would for the next many decades shape and form the history of the world. God said, I have a purpose for you, Elijah. I want your anointing. I want your fingerprint to be on these influential, powerful leaders. Even on Elijah's worst day, God had a ministry for him. Even on Elijah's worst day, when he thought it was over, when he thought he could never be used by God, God still had a ministry, a plan for him. God pursues us, and because we have been pursued, he sends us, saved and sent, to pursue those within our reach. When I think about the story, it's really the story of two mountains, the tale of two mountains. We began with Mount Carmel, the story of two mountains, beginning with Mount Carmel. First Kings 18, you are in Mount Carmel. Elijah is in Mount Carmel. This is a place of the visible power and the presence and the blessing of God. Here is where God showed up in such a remarkable way. Elijah felt so encouraged and strengthened. In fact, the word Carmel literally means vineyard, orchard, or garden. It's a place of flourishment with beautiful, picturesque slopes of greenery. That's where you want to always live your life. It's in Mount Carmel. But then he makes a journey, a 324-mile journey to where? To Mount Horeb. To Mount Horeb. And the word Horeb means desert, dry, and desolate. Desert, dry, and desolate. You can't picture any more two different mountains than Mount Carmel and Mount Horeb. This place is about the flourishment and the victories of life. This is a dry, disappointing place. Here, Elijah is surrounded by everybody in Israel at Mount Carmel. But in Mount Horeb, He's all alone. Elijah's army puts 450 people to death here, but here in Horeb, he wants to die. He doesn't want to live anymore. What two different mountains from Mount Carmel to Mount Horeb. But here is the beautiful thing in the story. The same God who pursued Elijah at Mount Carmel also pursued him at Mount Horeb. 
God pursued Elijah in both of these places, whether at Mount Carmel or Mount Horeb. And guess what? Every bit of the journey in the way, even right in the middle at Beersheba, God came with some bread and water. God pursues Elijah in both of these places, and he pursues you in whichever of these circumstances or experiences you are living through. He is a pursuer of people in both places. He doesn't just simply pursue people in the splendid cathedrals of life. No, he pursues us in the silent, scary caves of our life too. He is with us in the mountaintop and in the valley low. He is with us in the victories of our life and in the valleys of our life. He is with you on your best day and on your worst day. He pursues you both in the pinnacle of life and in the pit of life. He pursues you when you experience blessing and favor and amazing things. But his pursuit never lets down even when you don't want to keep going. Sometimes he'll pursue you by sending fire from heaven. And other times he pursues you even in more significant ways by the sound of gentle whisper, even in silence. Sometimes he'll show off his power and you'll find him. Other times, like in Beersheba, he'll come simply to care for you. Shows you his tender care and mercy. He doesn't pursue us where we are, you know, or where we should be, but right where we are. In fact, David would say like this in Psalm 139, where can I go, God, from your spirit? Where can I flee from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. I can go as high as I can even to the celebrations of Carmel, or I can go as low as I can into the horror of Horeb, and still in both places and everywhere between, you're there. Even when I'm running from God, I'm just running to him because he's everywhere. God not only pursues us where we are, he sends us like he did with Elijah. And this week, when we dismiss in just a few moments, he is sending you to somebody. Maybe God will put in your path someone who looks and sounds a lot like Elijah, discouraged, alone, even depressed. And God is sending you because they have been listening to a certain voice, and he's got an alternative voice. He wants them to hear from you. He wants you to correct the lies that they have lived by, by the truth of who they are to God and who they are in Christ. You are being sent to them. Maybe God will send you as the angel who takes somebody to lunch and buys a meal just to spark hope and strengthen someone's life. Again, who is it that God may be sending you to? For some of you, you've said, my ministry is over, my calling is done, my purpose is done, but God says, come back the same way you came. I've got more for you. I've got something special to do in and through your life. Some of you are in positions of power and influence, whether in the government or whether in some corporation out there. You are a pursued man or woman sent by God as his representative, as his ambassador to stand for him wherever you are and to be a conduit of his pursuit for people. Some of you may be older seasoned saints rather. And you're thinking, you know what? I've shared my life of mountain highs and even valley lows. There's nothing left for me to do. I'm just waiting for the good Lord to come and take me home. 
But is there an Elisha that God is sending you to? Is there an Elisha God is sending you to? To build, to mentor, to enable, to equip. Is there a, a generation? Is there a family? Is there a young couple? Is there a young single? Is there somebody trying to find their way? God is saying, here is your Elisha. I'm sending you to them. For some of you, you're in the cave like Elijah was. Not just a physical cave, but the cave of anxiety and distress, disappointment, just like Elijah was. And I don't know the details of your cave, but I do know that there's no cave God can't get to. We sung this earlier, no mountain he won't climb up, no wall he won't tear down to get to you. In fact, today I want you to know the word of the Lord is coming to you. And in fact, the word of the Lord has already come to you in the cave. John 1 reads like this. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. This word became flesh and lived among us. And we have seen the glory as of the only begotten son of God who came to us full of grace and truth. The word has already appeared. He came to us in the caves that we were in, that while we were still sinners, he would die for us, not waiting for us to get out of the cave, but he came to the cave, into our darkness, into our despair, into our guilt. He says, I've already come for you. So today, will you hear his whisper, even in the sound of sheer silence, will your heart be awakened to him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you show up whether we are living in Mount Carmel right now or in Mount Horeb or in somewhere between, you are an amazing pursuer, a relentless pursuer. Sometimes pursuing is by your power, but other times simply with tender care. So even in the quietness of this moment, whether at home or here in this room, may we listen to the whisper of heaven, to the sound and the voice and the word of Christ has come to us. And may you send us as we receive and listen. May we also listen to the things that you're calling us to, to the Elishas, to the next season of ministry, to the dreams you've placed deep in our heart. And even as Dr. King lived with this inner urge of a dream, God, give us the inner urge of your spirit every day. Helping us see what we don't see in the natural. Helping us hear what we don't naturally hear. Send us as people joining you on your pursuit. I thank you that you don't just pursue us where we should be, but you pursue us right where we are. And you come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Just a few moments when we're dismissed, I invite you to spend a few moments in the prayer room with us. We would love to spend that time with you. Maybe there you could hear the whisper of God. And in fact, these few weeks, we're doing a push for group signups. And I thought, since this message might have been a little heavy, I'd show you a little bit of a lighter video to communicate this message. So take a look at the screen that our, put, that our team has put together this video for you.